Welcome to episode 188 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much, man. It's the Lord's Day. It's a, it's a good, warm day. Summer is finally here. Good stuff. It's good stuff. Wait, summer is finally there? That seems a little bit early in the Northeast. No way, man. No, man. It's like 80 degrees out. It was like 90 degrees out yesterday. I mowed the lawn. It was like a jungle. I had to go over it twice <laughs> to get it done. It's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, that's a unique experience for people that maybe don't have their own properties or I know some people that before they purchase the home, they're like, you know, one of the things I really like, I'm actually looking forward to doing that's strange is mowing the lawn. And I usually yeah. say, give that two times and then you'll have a different perspective on that. Well, ironically, I actually really do enjoy mowing the lawn because I just put on my headphones and listen to podcasts and I, I live at the church as we've established. And so I use the church's riding lawn mower, which is, sort of fun. Uh, we got a new one this year that has extra horsepower, really? which is nice because they can actually like get up the little hills. It actually cooks along pretty fast. I like it. <laughs> Riding lawnmowers are actually pretty sweet. Like I know that sounds yeah. lame, but in the sense that like I've never really been on a moped or a motorcycle, the closest thing I'm getting to that, <laughs> that my wife would allow me to actually get on would be the riding lawnmower. So yeah. having all that wind in your face, I know probably people are saying, have you not ridden a bike before? <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> having a lawnmower where you just go wherever you want in your lawn is, is kind of cool. It is nice. It is nice. Well, let's let's kick it off with some affirmations and denials. Why don't we switch it up and have you go first? Oh, this week? I like this. Okay. Oh. So in an effort to – I'm trying to still understand the whole genus species things of our affirmations and denials. I think we got five, six categories. Yeah. Something, something like, like that. that. So this is in the food realm, and I don't think we've given a food affirmation in a little while. We've done it on occasion. Yeah. For instance, the infamous double affirmed. As <laughs> you say, if you're going to affirm popcorn with coconut oil on it, we need to have another. Maybe we need to have you see a doctor or something. I should have just memory, gone in. Get some memory issues going on. I should have just gone in straight face with that. Like, there's this amazing thing you can do with popcorn, but that's actually not where I'm going. So here's my favorite thing to do with food recently. My favorite food affirmation. And then as I've discovered, and I'm sure certain people have already come across this. If you go to your grocer, whatever your favorite grocer is, either they will have it out in the open near the deli section, or you can ask them. They sell what I'm calling like cheese niblets or like cheese nubs. So of course, like in the deli section, they're buying cheese in bulk and they're cutting it, they're slicing it down. And they get to a point where it's not saleable anymore. They have a small piece left over. And most places will just then wrap that up, weigh it and sell it. And so in our grocery store, there's this giant cheese bin. And we're into this thing now where we go and buy these little nuggets of like fancy, expensive cheese for like literally like a dollar or less than a dollar. And so it's almost like you're creating your own charcuterie or whatever. Like, I, for instance, this week I had cheese that was made with whiskey and beer and it was smoked. Cheese with smoke in it. <laughs> and this is like way, and it's stuff that I wouldn't be able to buy or afford otherwise. But I am affirming, go to your grocery store and ask where the cheese nubs are. And somebody will direct you somewhere where they're selling the pieces that are left over that they can no longer shave down and put, you know, like by, by order, like bespoke orders. It's so good. I think you probably go to a fancy 
grocery store because I've never seen I've never seen cheese nubs at my local price chopper. <laughs> and I've also never seen anything fancier than like a cabbage shark cheddar at the, the grocery store. So you must be going to one of those highbrow cheese stores. You know, one of my favorite things to do. So I mentioned Cabot cheese. Cabot's like this big cheese brand in the Northeast. Yes. The, there's a Cabot like it's not like factory's not right. They don't make the cheese there, but it's like a Cabot outlet store kind of. It is not unusual for my wife and I to go there and basically have lunch on the cheese samples at the cheese store. Yeah, for sure. Pretty amazing. For yeah. sure. That's what I'm saying. I think you should go like this is such a good affirmation. I'm taking off my shirt. It's a button-down shirt. I'm not going to record. Oh man, I'm shirtless. Um, I, this is so good because it gives you. It's like getting like a sampler of really nice cheeses that like you would normally try. And because it's a relatively small quantity, there's been a couple that I've tried where I've been like, oh, that is like straight funky. And it would be too much. Like I wouldn't want to eat more than this tiny little piece that I purchased. So it's like a great way. Like I feel like I'm all highbrow because again, I had cheese that was made with whiskey. And I was like, wow, yeah. this is some sweet cheese. And let, can I parlay this into one other kind of like semi-affirmation? I Let's think the official food of the pandemic, at least for my family, is uh, basically... Cheese? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's kind of ended up being cheese, but quesadillas. Like, here's oh, the thing. Yeah. If you get one of these blocks of cheese nubs and you don't like it, you just shred that bad boy up, put it in a quesadilla, and it's good. And, and here's what I would recommend with the quesadillas. Go, I know this is going to sound super lame, but it's so good. Just go get reasonably high quality canned chicken. I'm telling you, it's so good. You throw a little bit of this canned chicken, some whiskey cheese, you put that in the quesadilla, you'll be like, wow, I could live in my home forever. You know, we've uh, we've already dominated the healthcare market. Uh, so now we're now we're going after the food podcast market. Are there food podcasts? There have to be food podcasts. Absolutely. I've never heard of a, I've never heard a food podcast, but they have to be. Oh, out there's there. tons of food podcasts. Yeah. 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 Yes. We should uh, we should get the uh, distilling theology guys on and do like a like a cheese tasting podcast. We should just start that. Listen, I'm down with that. Again, the most whiskey I've had in conceivable memory is in cheese at this point. So it's been fun. That's true. So I'm affirming this. Go to your grocer. Find where the nubs and the nuggets are. They exist somewhere. Just ask the person behind the counter. Be like, listen, I know you got them. Let me know where those nubs are at. And I will gladly take a couple of those off your hands for a reasonable price. All right, so what, what do you got for affirmations? I don't know if I can if I can top that. I'm going to go to the grocery store and ask them where the nubs are. And you're going to read about me in the newspaper that I got arrested. They love it when for you something. Ask. Um, I am affirming our Reformed Brotherhood listeners. So we did an episode last week that was question cast. And uh, the first thing is apparently everyone loved universally loved the intro to our like the opening to our episode. <laughs> right. And we, we can't quite figure out exactly what was so unique about it. We would really like to know. So if you want to give us a little more feedback about what you liked so much, that'd be great. But it was like like people were coming out of the woodwork to tell us how great it was that I busted into oceans in the middle of the, in the, middle of the opening. Great. There. I forgot about that. Um, but more so than that, we answered a question, um, from Diego about the second commandment and mental images of Christ. And, uh, 
we have had a lot of people who have asked follow-up questions, have been engaged in it. There was a, a discussion in the Facebook group that got a little bit derailed by a, a little bit of a troll that we had to deal with, but really good discussion and conversation. Right. Um, we've gotten emails and voicemails about it. So thank you guys for being engaged. Thank you for engaging the content, for being serious enough to reason through this biblically. You know, there wasn't anybody that I ran into besides the one troll that we kicked out of the group who kind of came at it like, you guys are dumb. You're just swearing allegiance to the confessions. You're not looking at the Bible. Most people were coming at it saying, I disagree, but but I hear your argument and it's reasonable. So I want to know more. So thank you for engaging in a, a mature biblical fashion. So Jesse and I are actually going to do a follow-up episode next week. Uh, Jesse's going to kind of pull together all of the questions and feedback and, and thoughts that we've got. And we're going to answer some questions. We'll probably just talk a little bit more about, about the issue at hand. Uh, and hopefully that will be helpful. So thank you. This is exactly what we love. This is this is why we do question cast. This is why we have the voicemail and the emails, because we really want this show to be something that's useful to the listeners, not just something that's entertaining. I mean, we hope it's entertaining, but we want it to be useful. And so the more you can tell us what you need and, and what questions you have uh, that you'd like us to approach, uh, the better the show can be and the more useful it can be to our listeners. I'm pretty sure that totally destroyed my cheese nub affirmation because <laughs> here's why. One, that was actually really good, really thoughtful, really kind. And it is true. One of the things I was a bit surprised about is that there were so many different questions, but they were so thoughtful and from slightly different angles. So I yeah. do want to pull all those together and we're kind of just going to go through them and have a basic discussion about them. What I love about this podcast is that we have listeners that are willing on their own volition to be the kind of people that are willing to express maybe even an unsure opinion or they're trying to process something that is deep. And so I just love that there's hopefully like an actual legitimate safe place for people to come yeah. and say, I hear what you're saying, but what about this particular nuance or this application? And really, isn't that what all of theology should lead us to is to how we actually live better the Christian life? Right. And so I think a lot of these questions are diving into that. These aren't just necessarily like, armchair theological questions of, well, I'm sitting back and hypothetically speaking, and if I think about this in kind of an abstract way, it's more like, well, how do I really deal with that? And, and what about, how does that change my devotion to the Lord? And how does it change how I understand him and worship him, even in yeah. just my daily living? I love that stuff. So I'm glad that people are willing to do that. And this is the benefit of having like no real week to week agenda where we can say, <laughs> we hear those questions and a bunch of yeah. people presented different things. We, we want to take that seriously. So thank you for pushing on us to make this a conversation. Yep. Yeah. So we'll, we'll do that next week. So stay tuned. If you have questions uh, or thoughts that you want to get included in that, uh, go ahead and uh, call and leave a voicemail 607-444-2767. Or you can send an email to info at reformbrotherhood.com or join in the Facebook group and ask it there. Um, we may not get everybody's specific stuff represented, but uh, I think if enough people are asking questions, then we're going to approach your question either directly or as we kind of go through the conversation. And, you know, Jesse and I kind of joked a little bit about like a real life situation that we have to deal with pretty much every year at Christmas time. And we'll probably save the discussion of that until we get a little bit closer to Christmas time. Right. But there are real life situations, real practical application issues that surround this idea of the second commandment and, and particularly the image of Jesus that I'm, I'm hopeful that next week we're going to give you a little bit more kind of shoe leather kind of theology, but how do you actually reason through and deal with this? Because it's easy enough for me as a podcast host, and I'll share a little bit about 
uh, a situation that I have in my own history that's kind of been thrown in my face a couple times. It's easy to talk about this in the abstract on a podcast or in a Facebook group or on a blog. It's a lot harder to navigate. All right. So I have this conviction, but such and such a person that I interact with doesn't or the church that I attend doesn't or the the building that I work at or the, the hardware store that I shop at doesn't. And so they have this nativity scene out. It's easy to think about it. It's always harder to do it. So we want to give you a little bit more practical kind of steps to think about and some some practical elements to apply uh, the theology to your life. Oh, the nativity. Oh, the nativity. There's so, so many places to go there. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to this yes. actually. We, and I think we decided in our pre like podcast meeting, which was, I think just you and me texting that we wanted to give like a full episode. We thought yeah. about just saying, well, let's respond to some of this stuff in the affirmations and denial yes. section. But we thought, you know what, there's enough here that we want to kind of continue the conversation on. Yep. And let me say too, just to kind of piggyback on your affirmation, I kind of want to double affirm just how kind and mature I thought this perspective has been. I've seen places where this devolves yeah. into, I just disagree with you, or I don't see eye to eye on this issue. And so therefore we're kind of going to throw out the baby with the bathwater and just be vitriolic about the whole thing. And I've just been really impressed Actually, this has almost redeemed the internet for me and Facebook in particular, because (laughs) I think people have been really kind. And I love that. Like, this is where if brothers and sisters in Christ can't be kind about issues as they try to understand each other better, where can we expect kindness to actually reside? Yep. So I love that even on, and especially on maybe issues where somebody is saying something where you're thinking, you know what, that is somewhat of a different perspective and it carries a magnitude and I don't know how I feel about it, but to have really civilized dialogue is such a beautiful thing. Like this, like even as I'm saying it, it sounds super cliche and trite, but I don't mean it to be. I actually think there's something special happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were looking forward to that next week. So stay tuned on that. But Jesse, what are you denying this week? I'll make this really quick because this is going to be somewhat like nuanced. This is top of mind for me because I'm, I'm happy to be studying for a particular like examination and a certification. And I'm just like denying against the discipline and the subject of economics. I know that's super nerdy and I don't, I don't want to offend anybody who enjoys economics, but here's the problem real quick that I have with economics. And that is, it's one of those studies where nobody can actually prove anything about it. So it's just like all theory. And then you ask somebody, how do we know that's actually true? And they'd be like, we don't, you can't test it in the real world. It's just impossible. So it's like, it's almost as if it's like a discipline that helps you to be a better thinker about things that you can't actually prove. So I understand yeah. there's value in it, but I don't know if there's like a discipline in your life where you think, what is going on here? Like, I just don't want to say this. I just, I just don't enjoy it. Yeah. I think the discipline in my life that's like that is uh, buying cheese nubbins at the grocery store. <laughs> you say nubbins? I'm, I'm told that it's real, uh, but I can't actually prove it. Well, but, so. I mean, you can go and ask. Like, there will be evidence. In economics, like, there, there's almost no evidence because you can't construct studies to actually test yeah. the things that you're hypothesizing. That's yeah. what drives me insane. Yeah. Ironically, my denial is somewhat related to that. Really? Okay, so now I want to hear this. Yes. So I'm denying, uh, in sort of a trite way, people who think that they're constitutional lawyers on the internet. <laughs> so... A running theme on our podcast over the past couple months has been reflections that have 
involved the COVID pandemic in some way. You know, so we talked about initially how people should be charitable as churches make decisions about whether to stay open or close. Now that there's been all these government orders, how do we think about them? How do we respond to them? And now that the states have started to open up, we're starting to see Christians who either think that the state should allow them to gather sooner than they are allowing them to gather or who are actually starting to realize that the government has issued what they believe to be unlawful orders. And it's almost certainly the case that in some areas of the country, California is the one that sticks to mind. The government has definitely overstepped their bounds. But in other parts of the country, in New Hampshire, for example, the, the, the orders from the governor, as far as I can tell, not being a constitutional lawyer, are perfectly legal. Right. Um, so where this comes to be a problem, like it's okay to have an opinion, it's okay to read the statutes and compare them to your knowledge and make a statement. But where this really becomes a problem is when, when Christians start to like call each other names because of a disagreement and how someone understands this. So in the past week, I've been called a coward. Uh, I've been called a heretic. I've been called a loser. I've been told that I was worshiping the state simply because (laughs) I believe that my states, uh, my, the order from my governor which is generally applicable. He actually went so far as to say the church is not considered a non-essential business. He's actually said churches, synagogues, mosques, they actually don't even fall into the category of business. So the the orders that apply to non-essential businesses do not apply to churches. Right. The, the order that does apply to everyone, not just churches, not just synagogues, not just mosques, to everyone is that any planned meeting that is uh, on the books needs to have 10 or less people. And so a church that has 12 people like ours, we cannot plan a meeting unless we're going to tell certain people in the congregation that they're not allowed to come on a given week, which we're not going to do. Uh, we, we can't meet. And so as far as I can tell, that's a, that's a constitutional, uh, a constitutionally legal thing. He's, he's applying this, you know, across the board. It's not, not one group or one, uh, one type of person that it's applied to. I don't think it's necessarily being applied consistently because there are certainly more than 10 people gathered at, at a time when, when, you know, Home Depot opens up, they have more than 10 employees. They probably have a morning huddle or something. But when we as Christians start to try to make judgment calls over other Christians based on areas of study that we're not experts in, right? I'm not going to name any particular person, but there are lots of people who are basically saying such and such a Christian over there is sinning because they support their church staying closed during this. Right. Uh, Because, because the constitution says you can do, you can meet and that the state can't stop you. Well, that's not what the constitution says, uh, first of all, but, but you're not also, you're not a constitutional lawyer. You're not a lawyer at all. So you're not in a position to be any more of an expert, generally speaking, than I am about how to understand the Constitution. And that's not to say that the governors of certain states have not gone have gone further than they should. That's almost certainly the case. Um, in fact, the the system is working exactly the way it is The in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, one of the mayors specifically called out churches and the attorney general of the state brought a lawsuit and said, you can't do that. You, you can't do that. That's illegal. So you can't do that. So now we have grounds and precedent, which is how our legal system works, to point to what happened in Louisville and say, yeah, look, the governor there issued an order that, that called out churches and synagogues and other stuff specifically, and he was overridden. So now this other statute over in or other executive order over in California is also probably likewise illegal because it does the same thing. So all of that to say, 
And this is how it's related to yours. We can't test COVID in, in reality, right? right? We don't we don't know what's going to happen when when stuff starts opening up. We don't know what would have happened if we hadn't closed down. Like we, we don't know any of those things. So everybody is taking information. We're, we're trying to trust the experts and the models they've created and, and so far have been fairly accurate. And we're trying to do the best we can. And so I think we should all take a step back and, and realize, like, we're not experts in everything. Most of us aren't experts in anything, if we're really being honest. Like, most of us don't rise to the level of expert in, in really anything. Maybe, maybe some of us have a few areas we might rise to that level in. But most of us are not experts in epidemiology, constitutional law, um, you know, legislative processes, all of that stuff. So... You know, I saw I saw a thing online the other day that said you're not obeying uh, obeying a constant an unconstitutional order is actually a violation of Romans 13. Well, yeah, that actually would be true insofar as the order you're obeying is unconstitutional. But we don't know if it's unconstitutional until it's had a chance to work its way through the process right. and be, be be assessed by the proper judicial bodies to say yes or no, this is not constitutional. So I, I think everybody needs to take a step back. They need to relax a little bit. I want to get back to gathering with the saints as much as anyone else does. Like I, I want to do that just as much as the next person, but we have to be kind to each other. If we can't even be kind to each other through an internet screen, how can we possibly expect to be the body of Christ in person again, if we can't even respect each other in civil discourse, you know, on the internet. This is what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. That's the very thing. Like it's, it's funny in that I think there's a great irony in that we're showing in some ways, not everybody, but in some ways, the sense that we actually can't be that loving to each other when like it actually matters most. Like it's, of course, the test of love is whether or not you're willing to be inconvenienced. And so to get a sense that there is a genuine sense of love that has to be tested in the midst of disagreement yeah. is exactly the kind of test that God gives us to show, well, how serious are we about being gracious toward one another? Yeah. And like the issues you just talked about are complicated, like they're myriad, and most people don't have a clear understanding. So when I read yeah. a lot of those things, what I hear people saying is, my opinion is this, because that's all it is. Like right. they're not actual experts in interpreting anything. They don't have like a legal background. And we're talking about issues that are like emotionally charged. So yeah, you know they're going to be a little bit wild. Yeah. And you know, one last thing before we move into our topic is please have a little bit of extra grace for your pastor in all of this. Right. Yes, so so for sure. we're, we're talking about in New Hampshire, the state's orders are set to expire on May 31st. So we're starting to have conversations uh, as a leadership team at the church here about whether do we meet that first week or do we maybe give it a week to see if the surge comes back? Like, how, how do we handle this in a wise way? Because I've said it before, at the end of the day, the fact that the government has has told us that we shouldn't be meeting is almost irrelevant. Like, we right. should be looking at the situation and saying, is it safe? Is it wise? Um, the fact that the government has has put these orders in place that makes it impossible for us to lawfully gather actually makes it a little easier. But at the end of the day, it's not really relevant. So we're starting to think about that. And it's, it's already really complicated. And then you throw on top of that, I'll, I'll be honest with you, like I spent several hours yesterday, reading every single executive order uh, that the governor of New Hampshire has has issued, acknowledging I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a legislator, I have no idea. I mean, there's I, if I read one more, whereas I'm going to go crazy. And I, I have a tough time figuring it out. So like your pastor, who likewise is just 
probably super busy trying to do visitation, trying to manage technology they're not used to, trying to figure out finances and bills that they're they're normally they have, you know, funds coming in and people aren't sending tithes to the church, like all this stuff that's going on. Plus multiple congregation members saying we should open, we shouldn't open, you know, people on the internet saying you're a coward for not opening people on the internet saying you don't care about the sixth commandment. If you do like all these different things, please just like have a little extra grace for your pastor and the elders and deacons at your church as they try to figure this out. Cause this is, this is weird, confusing stuff to do. So, um, you know, it'd be even better. Call them, email them, ask them (laughs) if you can, Ask them if you can help with it. Can I, can I take some of the burden off your plate by reading through some of these legal statutes and trying to help understand what they say? Like reach out to your pastor and ask how you can help. Cause I'm sure I I will only speak for myself as someone in leadership in the church. I don't want to speak for my pastor because I haven't talked to him specifically about this. It's overwhelming to think about all of the different stuff that's going to have to happen for us to get together. We're going to have to figure out masks. We've already had to figure out how do we do communion in a safe way? How do we collect the offering in a safe way? Like we can't have everybody putting their hands in and out of the same, the same plate. We can't pass that plate around. Like there's all this stuff that we're trying to figure out. Um, so, so have a little grace, pray for them, email them, ask if there's way that ways that they can help encourage them. They probably, you know, they're used to getting a certain amount of real time feedback uh, during the sermon about how things are going with the sermon. Right. You can see it on people's faces. They're not getting that the same way. So email them, let them know you appreciate that they're still diligently laboring in the word in order to bring you a, a sermon from the scripture every week. Just do what you can to show a little extra grace and to support them. I mean, these are decisions that no pastor right. thought they would actually have to weigh out. Right. You know, how to make sure that they're protecting the people and their flock in a really real way with respect yeah. to like a virus. I don't want to make that call. Like, I think if anybody said, like, they should be honest with themselves, like, would you want to be responsible for making the decision about whether or not people gather and how they gather? And for some churches, those decisions aren't just in the respect of, like, well, do we need to wear masks? But how many services do we need to have? Do we need to remove chairs? We're going to have children's ministry. Is there going to be nursery? All that stuff is so difficult. I don't want to do that. And so I like this idea of, like, Maybe just reach out to your pastor and at the very least let them know that you're praying. But if there's something that you can do, maybe you can say, like, if there's something I can do to champion the direction that you're going in, that I can be a voice of encouragement toward those in my peer group, I feel like that would be a great help and a boon to a pastor, to know that there are those in the congregation that are willing to stand behind him and be helpful in pushing forward a vision as opposed to people just being naturally, like, dispossessed to, like, be, like, difficult with whatever decision is made. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, just to put some uh, reality to this to help understand why this is a scary decision for pastors and and elders and deacons to make, you know, there was a church in Germany that, uh, you know, Germany started relaxing their restrictions. And this church, it was a Baptist church in Germany, which is actually pretty rare, but it was a Baptist church in Germany. Why is it going to be Baptist? I don't know, man, (laughs) but they, they decided to they decide to meet. And I'm not sure how big the church was. It had to be at least, probably at least 150. But now 40, 40 people in the congregation oh, yeah, tested right. positive for right. coronavirus. And they've investigated. They've done everything they can. As far as they can tell, the church followed all the right procedures, masks, social distancing. Right. They, 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 you know, they, de- or they sanitized everything before between services. And there was still 40 people that got sick. So it, it's... It's a scary, like, I can tell you as a deacon, the thought of saying, all right, we're going to open back up again and we're all going to be in the same room. 
I'll be honest with you, knowing what I know about the region, it's probably fine. Like we're probably fine. Nobody's going to get sick. But the weight of the fact that if yes. somebody does get sick, they right. can get really sick and they could die. Like right. that's a heavy weight for a pastor and a deacon and an elder board to think about. So it, it takes a lot of prayer and wisdom and, and decision making that you might not realize goes into it. Yeah. And I like, I like that, that thought that, because I think that's, that's where people should start and let that build. We should just have compassion as a normative stature of like where we're at. But yeah. Let that build your sense of compassion for your leaders, because you and I have talked about this, I think, only off the air. But this idea that like when we speak about probabilities, it's not just about low probability events, but the right. magnitude if the probability occurs. And so we're playing like I hate to use this cliche, but it's like with live ammo here. Like, yeah, there are real repercussions. To this It's not just this idea of like, well, let's think about you know, kind of the intellectual implications of this or like what we'd rather see happen. We're right. really trying to love each other. Like this is the Ten Commandments. This is the Sixth Commandment. This is all of it actually right. in practice, and it's in such a like such a degree that it requires us to actually be really thoughtful and maybe to have a little debate and a little bit robust discussion. But my hope is that we have that, and it's always tempered by grace and love in, yes. in a real sense. That like you're never trying to defeat somebody's argument merely because you have a strong opinion about something, but yeah. that because we're actually trying to do what is best for the body of Christ. And sometimes that might actually be a little bit more conservative with respect to how we bring about the full gathering of the saints right. in the physical realm. So let's just be like, I think you and I say a lot of time, like, can we be more gracious to each other? Can we be more loving yeah. to each other? But we actually mean that. And we're yeah. trying to practice that. I think ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a big deal. And, you know, it's it's scary. Like there are churches and, and my, my church is one of them that there are people in the congregation that if they get this, they will almost certainly die. Right. Right. And a lot of smaller churches, if if one person leaves the church, even if it's by death, like financially, that could be the end of of the church. So so there's a lot of things going on this. And yes, we trust God to protect us. We, we trust in God's of course, providence. Of course. But but God uses means. And one of the means that he uses to protect and preserve his people is, is wisdom and intentionality according to the moral precepts of his law that he's given to his people. So for us to, for us to just roll the dice and say, well, we're going to get together and whatever God does, God does like that's, that's not a, a proper application of reformed theology. That's actually like a weird form of like omen, omen reading, like kind of yes. stuff like, well, we'll know what God intended by based on what happens. Well, the Christian perspective and especially the re reform perspective is no, we'll know what God intends by following his moral law. And so, as we've said in the past, we did a whole episode on this, like, we have to take into account the sixth commandment about preserving life, we have to take into account the fifth commandment in terms of respecting authorities, we have to take into account the first, second, and third, and fourth commandments in terms of our obligations. So all of those things, it's not an either or, it's not as though one commandment is more important than the other. I mean, the first four commandments are more important than the the final six, the, you know, the first table is greater than the, the second table, right. but it's not as though those things ever really work at odds with each other. But it's difficult to figure out how do we pull them? How do we balance them? How do we do them right? And right. So, some churches are going to get it wrong. Some churches have got it wrong. And, and we know that because different churches have handled it in contradictory ways. So they can't both be right. right. So they could both be wrong, but they can't both be right. So just have some grace for not only for your pastors, especially for your pastors, but for everyone else you interact with on the Internet. Like we're all trying to figure this out together. And none of us, none of us has gone through this. None of us is an expert in this. Just be cool, people. Just be cool. <laughs> 
Just be chill. <laughs> like because we've spoke about this at length too. It almost seems like one of the bumper stickers of the Reformed faith could be God works through ordinary means. Yes. And when we say yes. that, we mean that in every ordinary means. Yes. Like so even in situations like this, it's not just like God works in through ordinary means in a theological or spiritual perspective, but in all means, right. he is working in an ordinary way through the small and seemingly yep. insignificant things. And exactly. so I think that applies equally here. So, I mean, I actually think, and I'm not trying to in any way belittle the mass amount of human suffering that has occurred because of the pandemic, that in all cases, God is working out his plan in a glorious and miraculous way. And so even so here, if what he's doing in the lives of Christians is pushing them in a direction to really consider what it means to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that is like intensely practical, intensely filled with piety, then so be it because it is a matter of trying to understand how to live out all of these Ten Commandments in this particular environment. And it's almost like absent this kind of stress and affliction, would we ever be forced to think in the way that we are thinking right now? And of course the answer is no. It's such an extreme and unique example. And so there is good in this. Like this is what I've been saying to lots of people who are my friends and what the Lord has been teaching me is that if we believe, so it's not just enough to believe, like Thomas Watson style, all things are for good. The question of Christianity, because it is an exacting religion in the sense that God requires hard things, and yet at the same time he provides all of the, the energy, the emphasis, the ability to do those hard things, it is the ability not just to say all things are good, but to actually live in such a way that you truly conform to that reality. And that, I think, especially happens in the ordinary means. Yeah. So we just need to be reflective of that because, I, and this maybe is too political, but I think that some of what the state governments have pushed against is an extremist Christian perspective that says something outlandish like, oh, the church is the safe, the church, meaning like the property on which the Lord's people meet on the Lord's day. This is the safest place I can be. I'm going to hug and shake hands because this is where God is going to protect me. Like that, that is such an abuse. Right of all of the reality, and it, I can see why somebody would react strongly to that in a legislative manner and say, you can't get together, <laughs> that's how you're gonna yeah. handle it. Because the reality is God's people still do get sick. God doesn't provide some kind of blanket protection because of the space in which you're sitting on the Lord's yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, let, let me put it this way and then we can kind of move on is, if God is going to protect your church from the coronavirus, the most likely way that he's going to do that is through your church exercising wisdom according to his moral Right on. That is the most right likely way he's going to do it. Could he do it by somehow miraculously protecting a church that doesn't change anything? Yeah, probably. Absolutely he could. Not probably, he, he could. He could. But the most likely way he's going to protect your church from any, any situation, no matter what it is, is by predominantly the elders and the, the ministers in your church exercising wisdom in how they lead it, but also in the congregation responding and submitting to their elders in the wisdom of the moral law. And if he's going to destroy your church, I guarantee you it's probably not going to be through supernatural means. Right. If God wants to, right. if God wants to humble and take out your church and, and wipe that in that local instance of, of the body of Christ. So it's no more, He's going to do it through ordinary means as well. He's going to do it through the the weakness of fallen men. He might do it through sickness or illness. He may do it through financial, uh, you know, poor decisions or or financial situations completely out of the church's control. But it's going to be through ordinary means. Yes. So when we see churches that are saying exactly as you're saying, well, 
I'm not going to get sick because I, you know, I worship the Lord and, and we're doing the right thing. You know, he's going to protect us because we gather on the Sabbath. That's basically like the health and wealth gospel applied to the pandemic. It is, yes. Is be, because I'm being obedient to God, to what I perceive God's will to be, he's going to reward me temporally by protecting me. If I get together with a bunch of Christians on Sunday, I'm safe from the coronavirus. But if I get together with those same Christians at Starbucks on Monday, I'm not safe. Like, that's just nonsense. Like, yes. it just isn't the way that the God of the scriptures works. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought I was going to be like low key about that. And I just I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't do it. Get that weak sauce out of here. I totally yeah. agree. It strikes me as we conclude this portion of the podcast that um, it's providential that before the pandemic, we were already established as one of the top 50 healthcare podcasts. I know. Because this just means we can really speak into this environment we in a very can. unique way. Yeah, you know, I'm we not a constitutional I'm not a constitutional lawyer and I don't play one on TV, but <laughs> we are among the top 50 healthcare podcasts in the country. So, I mean, we should have gone to Vegas and claimed our prize. We but I mean, so I don't think we really need to. I think we just we just exude healthcare podcasts. I agree. It's just so yeah. funny. Like that's is mainly legitimate or not the only real award that we've ever won, and so we just claim that we've just appropriated it. It's, it's you know that it's it's basically the, like a blab it and grab it kind of philosophy. But I like that we yeah. just we just at this point we're totally leaned into it. So that's who yeah. we are. I mean, I didn't reach out to them; they reached out to me. Exactly. So. I will say this though, uh, we're very quickly going to become the number, you know, top fifty food podcast. And with today's discussion, we we should probably be like the top fifty constitutional law podcast. <laughs> so we're getting there. We cover a lot of ground, and and that as like by way of some transition. The funny thing is to me is that we cover a lot of ground, and that sometimes I know like we always confirm with each other before the episodes, like, do you have affirmations? Do you have denials? We never tell each other what they are. And sometimes it strikes me that, like, we have a full episode just in our affirmations and denials, like, whether it's John Piper or constitutional law, sometimes we really just get into it. But we, we are back into, believe it or not, bookcast. Yes. And this is a little bit exciting. It's it's partly, it's closing in our transition because we're in chapter 19 of Joel Beakey's book, Reform Preaching. And we're talking about 20th century preachers, two of them in this example, in this particular chapter. And this is actually the last chapter before we return more to like the principles writ large of reform teaching. So we're, we're kind of it's sad in a little bit of a sense because we're coming to the end of all these wonderful examples that you and I have been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I got to admit, uh, I'm a little bit excited too, because <laughs> as much as I've loved, as much as I've loved these practical examples for us to look at, I really do want to get back to sort of like the theological constructive element of it. So it's, it's nice to sort of wrap this up. You know, as, as I've kind of said, like the way that Dr. Beaky put this together is really smart, right? He, he starts with this introductory section of five or six chapters of, really like the theology of preaching, like the theology of experiential preaching. And so he, he did that. And then he's got these several chapters. There's like a dozen chapters of examples where he right. kind of shows you, all right, here's the principle. Here's the situation. I'm going to demonstrate the principles with these different preachers. And now we're getting into this last section uh, after, after this week, this week is one more of the preacher sections where we're going to start seeing all right, now that we've gotten that, how do you apply it? How do you apply it to your preaching? How do you apply it to your listening as a sermon participant or as a congregation member? How do you apply it? So I'm excited. It is a little bit, 
it is. I almost said melodramatic. That's not really the right <laughs> word. Maybe I'm being melodramatic. It's a little bit bittersweet yes. to sort of be done with these. You know, like these these people are kind of like old friends now that right. we've sort of spent all this time with. But it's exciting to get to the point where we now start to put some shoe leather to it and and, and see how to actually like go out into the world with this. Okay, so there's two particular preachers in this chapter. We have to decide at the top. We didn't talk about this. How are we going to say the first person's last name so that we're all on the same page? It doesn't sound like we have totally different pronunciations. Uh, I'm going to go with Vice. Yeah, that's that's mostly what I've heard. Yeah, or Vice maybe. Yeah, I've heard I've heard Vice and I've heard Vice. So this is Gerard. Wait, what should we decide? Vice. Gerard Vice. Okay. Yeah. Spelled W-I-S-S-E, and then the very famous Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. <laughs> No practice. <laughs> no practice. No practice. So let's start with Gerard because, uh, and, and when we say this, like. You guys are on a first name basis now? Yeah, listen. He, he, <laughs> you guys are tight. He and I are very, very close. We eat a lot of whiskey cheese together. But here's the thing. One of the things that I appreciate about how Dr. Joel Beakey described him was I'm so familiar with him just on kind of the edge in the margins. And yeah. One of the things that really impressed me was I think that the way that Dr. Beakey describes his emphasis and his rubric for understanding the Christian faith, he talks about like a nine by nine matrix, which we can get into if we want. But I actually think that what, what Vice is saying here is this is actually the better, more appropriate and thorough, proper explanation of Christian maturity and where you and I have talked about things like second baptism or some kind of higher level theology that actually vice describes it better. Yeah. And he is describing what is actually happening in the Christian life. So he's, he speaks a lot about this knowing Christ experientially in his offices. The offices is really the big focus of what builds his rubric for preaching and then kind of, a, I would say, proclaiming and exclaiming the gospel. I want to read this quote. Vice says, the central matter for us all is the experience of spiritual regeneration by the love of God. God's children are all partakers of the experiential knowledge of misery, deliverance, and thankfulness. So, of course, those two words, depending on your experience with the High Double Catechism, they may jump out to you because he's exploring how Christ's threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, brings us, and I love this, triple knowledge, which is enforced or taught by the Heidelberg Catechism. Yeah. So that just floored me as like a starting point. I love that. Yeah. And you know, one thing about that quote that I think probably bears saying is the word regeneration um, takes on a more technical, a technical term uh, when you get into some later theology. So um, I don't know this for sure. I'm speculating, but I think Vice here is probably using the word regeneration in sort of the older, the older way. And this for is sure. in some senses how um, Bavink, who was, uh, a, you know, kind of a contemporary in some ways to him, how Bavink uses it um, and how Calvin uses it. And so regeneration in this older use is really more what we talk about when we say sanctification. So when he says for us, the experience of spiritual regeneration by the love of God, he's probably talking about the experience of Christian growth throughout the life of a Christian. Not, not what we talk about at that sort of initial moment where God breathes new life into the, into the, you know, the unrepentant believer and creates faith. He's probably not talking about these, probably talking about what we would talk about as sanctification. Just keep right. that in mind as we kind of unpack the rest of this. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. And I think that, so this is like really poor podcasting, but 
for those who maybe haven't read the chapter or might be a little bit interested in what we're talking about, this method that Vice puts forward, what he's done is to describe it as best I can, he's created like this three by three matrix. Yep. And the rows represent the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And the columns note like this triple knowledge enumerated by the Heidelberg Catechism, misery, deliverance, and thankfulness. So in this nine by nine grid, he's basically enumerating each of those little squares, something specific about the Trinity. And there's like this wonderful econometric focus. It's not necessarily chronological, but the sequence, and it often is overlapping, of understanding how each of those things influence each of the other things. And I found this so helpful. Like, I think there's a lot there that even if you just pulled up this chapter and looked at that matrix, would help you in your Christian walk to understand a little bit about how God leads us to these various levels of maturity and development. And what I was overwhelmed with, again, is by the sense that where I think a lot of people try to speak in chronological terms about growing or increased surrender or second order or junior or varsity Christians, that really I think what they're talking about is what Vice is trying to articulate yeah. in this matrix. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's undeniable, you know, as Christians progress in their sanctification, they are more aware of of Christ's different offices and how he uh, how those offices are not only applied to us, but also how we as the body of Christ fulfill those offices right. along with Christ. That's something that we, we don't usually talk about. We haven't, I don't think we've really talked about it on this podcast too much, but the Christian believer and the more so the church corporately actually participates in the threefold office of Christ. Um, some people take that a little bit too far and actually say that we, we are Christ, like the church and right. Christ is the whole Christ. Right. I don't think that that's necessarily a proper application of that, but you know, the church participates in the the prophetic ministry of Christ by the proclamation of the word. The church participates in the priestly office of Christ by interceding on behalf of the world yes. for, you know, for peace in the world, for whatever. And we, we participate in the kingly office of Christ primarily in the fact that we, we will reign and rule over the world. And we exercise a dominion as the church in a certain way that, that the unbeliever doesn't exercise over the world. And so we all kind of instinctively grasp that, right? There are times when we feel a little bit more aligned with one or the other. And what Vice does here that I think is really innovative, and I think is probably right on, is he, he kind of argues that the Christian, as they grow, progresses through these three stages that are exemplified in the Heidelberg Catechism, right? He talks about it as misery, deliverance, th thankfulness. Um, uh, you know, there's other other frameworks to, to that guilt, grace, gratitude, right? There's these different threefold um, ways of looking at it that are all basically the same. But rather than saying like, all right, well, the Christian experiences the the misery prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. Right. He basically argues that as you go through from right to left or from left to right, you go through the three stages in sort of in line with the prophetic. So you right. experience Christ's experiences and applies his misery uh, as, as in a prophetic sense first, and then deliverance to prophetic sense and thankfulness and prophetic sense. And then you move on to priest. And he's, he's careful to make the distinction that like, you never really graduate from one of these phases. It's not like you, you pass, you know, out of the priest or the prophet area. And now you're only experiencing the priestly ministry of Christ. But he kind of argues that God applies different offices and different, different phases almost of this, uh, this framework 
to the Christian as they progress towards maturity. And so he would argue that the most mature experience of a Christian is to experience the thankfulness related to Christ's kingly office. And I got to admit, like, I think that's right. I, I think that... I think that as we become more and more assured of our salvation, we, we realize the inheritance that is ours in Christ and we become thankful for it. We realize that that inheritance is not just some ethereal salvation, some, some concept of being saved from sin. That inheritance we have is that we will rule with Christ over all creation for all time. That's our inheritance, that we, we become the sons of God as, we're, as we partner with and are adopted in Christ. So I, I think this is really innovative, and I think you're right. Like, this is this idea of, like, victorious Christian living, like, second blessing, all this stuff that we look at and we kind of go, eh, something quite, not quite right with right. that. It creates these two tiers of Christians. This, I think, has the potential to do that because it has these different phases, However, because of the way that it's structured and the way that you never quite graduate out of the other ones, this is a much crisper, clearer way to do it. I think that follows the biblical material a lot closer. Everybody, Everybody should look this up. I think it'll be really helpful to them in that way because yeah. sometimes we have a tendency as Christians, especially like quote unquote Sunday school graduates, to like shy away from discussions about Christian maturity because we sense that in some way that's lording over some kind of experience or some kind of growth over other Christians that are in a different place or season of life in their development as followers of Jesus. And yet, of course, even Paul spoke about the importance of maturity. What I like is that vice is emphasizing that maturity, but not in a way that's hierarchical. There's, like you said, I like this idea, like you never graduate from the classroom. You're never going to leave it. And yet at the same time, He's very honest with what the scriptures say, and that is that there is an arc or trajectory toward maturity. And so we should seek that, and we shouldn't be necessarily proud of that because we know that even that development, that working out of salvation is a work that God does through the Holy Spirit in our own lives. But nonetheless, it exists, so we shouldn't run from it. We should try to understand it and know how to quantify it. And I think, among others, he does a really great job in this matrix and I like that the matrix is Christocentric because it's not about trying to like plot these waypoints along a journey. It's talking about the offices of Christ. So in every way, when we speak about our own maturity, we're really always speaking about what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe to, to just sort of cement this and make it a little clearer, let me just quote um, Dr. Beakey's summary of this. This is on the bottom of page 335 and it spills over to 336. He says, Vice acknowledges that at each stage, one of Christ's offices is more preeminent than the others. At the beginning, the lost sinner will be subject in a more direct sense to the prophetic ministry. Then Christ as surety and priest is felt to be more and more necessary. His royal ministry is the crowning piece of the experiential life as believers move ahead as warriors and pilgrims who need the king to lead them through the midst of all their enemies to the gates of the splendid city of God. So and so, so this is how, this is how I conceptualize it, right? Is that what we, what we need and get first from Christ is his preaching and his making known the will of God for our salvation, right? right? That's the hallmark of his prophetic office. And so we, we receive that in our misery. He, he makes known our misery and then he, he reveals the will for our salvation, which we receive. And then he 
preaches and teaches us to be grateful. Once we get sort of through that, now we experience him as our intercessor, as our mediator, the person who stands in the gap between God and us and sort of bridges that gap and reconciles us to God. And this is the paradoxical thing that I'm not I'm not quite sure how I think about this yet. Rather than sort of like getting all the way to thankfulness and then progressing to thankfulness in the priestly category, right. you actually go back to the misery category. Yes. And so you start off in this misery category by realizing you know, what, what it is that Christ is mediating. You, you know, you have a, a greater sense of the severity of what Christ did on the cross. And then you move into what that means for me in terms of my deliverance, that I don't have to bear that punishment. And then you move into thankfulness of, of recognizing that. And then you move into this victorious, sort of victorious Christian element of recognizing the implications of those two things for what it means to be one with the king. Right. Right. So I think it's a little counterintuitive because you go back to that misery, that misery perspective again. But as I think about it, and as I reflect on my own Christian life, there's a real grain of truth in that mm -hmm. is that, you know, you, you realize that Christ wants to save you and you're, you, you receive that, you're thankful for it. But then once you've received that and you have gratitude for the fact that he's delivered you, there usually is this phase where you sort of, you almost get fixated on the cross. And, right. you know, sort of fixated on what it is that, that Christ did for you and what it is, what it means that he did that for you. And then I think the sort of this, this final stage of assurance of salvation, I think that's where this kingly perspective comes in is we get this assurance of our salvation, this confidence to go out and to proclaim the gospel, to, to conquer the enemies of darkness, right? This is that Ephesians 5 perspective. We put on the armor of God so that we can fight the enemy. We can wrestle against the powers of darkness. There really is a kernel, a, 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 it rings true what he's saying here, even though I'm not 100% sold on it yet. It, sure. it, it, there's a there's a sense that it feels right. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. Like it's, it's at the it's same time, it's chronological, yet it's also iterative at various yes. levels. And so you're, yeah. you're always kind of revisiting going back. And isn't that really, I would say like the, the hallmark of anybody who is really I would say like self-aware about anything they know, right. it always causes them to realize that the more you know, even if, like you talked about, if you're an expert in a subject, really, if you're self-aware, you realize the more you know about a subject, the more you have yet to learn. And yeah. so this is in some ways the same thing. You're experiencing something profound as you grow in your maturity of faith. And at the same time, it propels you back to the very beginning so you can appreciate the first steps in a more profound way. And yep. so I like that, that that's where he goes. So, all right. So in like, is it in the, I would say in the instance of time, like we should definitely look at D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and yes. do our best because, so how long can we manage before we start speaking of, let me say it this way, a priori reasoning that's combustible because that's like the typical, that was like a joke that didn't, that didn't hit at all. I, I have to, I have to be honest. Like I'm not, I'm not super familiar with, uh, really? No, I, how did you I, avoid that? I'm not sure. You know, it's funny as I, as I learn more and more about like the typical progression that people make into Calvinism, yeah. I, I, the more I realize, like, I just don't fit that mold. So like, I, I never really spent a lot of time with D Martin Lloyd Jones. He just never did. Like, I, I, oh man. I mean, if, if so, reform theology is like a train journey, this is like a major stop along the way. Yeah, he really is. Like, I, I recognize now as I've sort of studied him a little bit, like the gravity and the significance. Um, one of the things that I think is the, the most interesting thing about 
him is he wasn't necessarily trained as a preacher. Right. That's right? true. He, he had a very different pathway into ministry as a preacher. You know, he was, he was a medical doctor first and he didn't, he didn't do like a traditional seminary education. He was ordained straight into the missions field and right. he kind of learned to preach like on the ground. He learned to preach just by preaching. He didn't do a lot of that academic study. And I think that speaks, you know, we kind of commented, commented on this a little bit when we talked about Bunyan, we've mentioned it a little bit in relation to Spurgeon, like this, God can do this and he does do this. This is not the norm. So, so if you're out there thinking like, yes, Martin Lloyd Jones went straight to the mission field without any training, there's my, my free pass to go to the missions field because he did it. Like right. that's probably not the case. Not right? prescriptive. God, God ordinarily doesn't do it that way to go back to the discussion ordinary means. He normally prepares ministers through some sort of formal education, whether that's seminary or formal kind of apprentices in pr- apprenticeship in the church. That's what he normally does. He didn't do that with, with Lloyd Jones, which, which I think is really interesting. Let me make a confession before we go any further. I have to ask though first, have you, have you heard many sermons like his actual recorded sermons by any chance? I've listened to a few of them. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're phenomenal sermons. I mean, yeah. he was an excellent preacher. Oh, I'm not even getting that deep. I just want to start by saying to me, he sounds like Peter Sellers playing the pink Panther, <laughs> something about like his voice. Cause his voice is higher on, I would say yeah. in like the higher register. And like, and this goes into some of his preaching. He was a very serious preacher. So yes. like it, it talks about that in this particular chapter, how he really felt like there was no need to get up and make jokes, try to entertain people. It was all about business time. Like when I yeah. get in the pulpit, I'm going to preach the word. And there's something, of course, about that that's very endearing. It's very unique to him in terms of his style that he was very concerned with, again, being about always and in every way all about the business of the gospel. So, you know, one of the things that Beaky draws out in this particular chapter is that Jones focused on the preaching of the glory of God and this idea of a defining characteristic, which which to me seems almost somewhat like R.C. Sproul style, that yeah. Lodge Jones preaching was that his hearers would come away feeling greatly reduced in their own eyes before this immense majesty of God in Christ. And I like the way in which Beakey uses this quote from J.I. Packer where he says, Lloyd-Jones spoke as a debater making a case or as a doctor making a diagnosis. And so to your point, that is a place where God, of course, is calling men to preach the gospel in a unique way. It's not prescriptive. In this case, it's just merely descriptive of what God did in his life. But the right. fact of his upbringing, his education was unique. He's preaching into a time and a place, like we've talked about, where this was altogether what God endeavored to do. We needed the doctor, essentially, to come and bring this diagnosis Right. And that was by his specific plan. So this is unique. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why people are drawn to him because he's a unique dude. Like, yeah. it's, there's something compelling to be like, this guy was a medical doctor. Doctors are like wicked smart. Like here, yeah. here he's doing his own thing medically, and he goes into preaching. Like even that by itself is kind of extreme. Like what's up with that? So the fact that he preaches in this way that's very doctor-like, I, I think there is a lot for us to learn from that. Yeah, and you know, there's so much that could be said about. Um, about Lloyd Jones, he, you know, he's, he's this figure that's larger than life. He has this, yes. this ridiculously huge preaching ministry. Um, I don't even know off the top of my head, how many volumes his Romans commentary is. I mean, it, it in it's almost huge. every, yeah, in almost every <laughs> way that you can measure, he is, is larger than life. Yes. But one of the things that I think was really interesting because, you know, you think of some of these like really serious preachers, I think Jonathan Edwards and Martin Lloyd Jones are actually very similar in a lot of ways. Yes. 
And what I think is interesting is you think of these really serious intellectual preachers like Edwards or Martin Lloyd-Jones, and you think almost like they have to be cold and disconnected. They have right. to just be they have to just be like utterly disconnected from the congregation. But in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. Right. So Beaky summarizes uh, sort of part of his philosophy of preaching, saying preaching is a spiritual triangle whereby God draws the preacher and the hearers closer to himself and to each other. So, so Lloyd-Jones viewed the preaching act not only as a way to draw people to God, but to draw closer to God himself as the preacher. So there was, a, there was a, an element of personal piety, similar to what we talked about with McShane. There's an element of personal piety and devotion to God in the preaching act. And then there was a, a corresponding element of personal piety in the congregation in the sitting under the preaching act, whatever we want to call that. And right. as, as far as both of those parties are committed to that act and are, are trusting the Lord to accomplish his work by his Holy spirit, they are both drawn like a triangle towards the point of the triangle, which is God. But in that act, they're drawn closer to each other. So, so what I think you see sometimes is you see pastors who may seem like really passionate preachers, but they're just disconnected from their congregation. Like, you know, I, I don't want to call anyone specifically out, but you see this a lot of times with people who are like, you know, you have like the ministering pastors and then you have the preaching pastor right, like, and right. all the preaching pastor does is he sits in his office, he studies and he prepares sermons and he doesn't have, you know, normal pastoral care responsibilities, he, especially like some of these multi-site campuses where you have like the, the, the front man who does all the preaching on the video screen. And then you have like these campus pastors or, or local pastors that do all the ministering that can't work in this model because right. that pastor needs to be connected to his congregation, to the people he's preaching in a way that he knows them and they know him. And so when you have this disconnected model, it doesn't work. And I think that's a good corrective for our churches these days, because in some reformed churches, there can be this element that the pastor's real, their real responsibility is to preach the word. That's their real responsibility. And like the pastoral visitation stuff, like, well, that's, that's a responsibility too. But if I have to choose between the two, I'm going to kind of like yep. pawn that, that pastoral visit stuff off on the, the ruling elders or on right. like the junior pastor. Right. In reality, you can't separate the preaching of the word and the ministering to God's people in the day-to-day -day life. Those two things have to be inseparably went together. And I think that's one of the things that Jones does so well. And when you think about how prolific his preaching ministry was, you know, he's preaching, he's preaching all the time on Sundays, but then he's also preaching on Wednesdays. He's preaching all over the place. He really had to work hard to keep that connection to his local congregation. Right. And I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure how he did it when you think about all the different things he was doing. Yeah, I think that's a fair point because it's something worth remembering that when we speak about the ex biblical example of preaching, we have the word becoming flesh. So that word is not just the word itself becoming oration, but the fact that it lives and breathes among us and exemplifies the very thing that it is also preaching. And so good preachers do that very thing. And it's only, I would say, in the modern era where error, era? era where that's like the New England accent coming through, where we have the ability because of the resources afforded to us that we can specialize pastors. So it becomes yeah. this way, like the junior pastor is the one that takes care of all the things that the senior pastor would 
I'm going to be pejorative, would rather not do because he'd like right. to just have his time focused on study. And the bottom line is to have studied well is to have served well. And so right. those, I think, that can do that in a holistic way are the ones that are going to inevitably preach better. And so there's yeah. something unique about this. Is what's interesting, and that's my joke was about the whole logic on fire thing. I was just yeah. trying to use like different. <laughs> like you're like, I got it. I just yeah, didn't think I, it was that good. It, it took me a little while to get where you were going. I was like, a priority. I was like, I don't remember. I don't remember reading about like philosophy contributions. Must have missed that. But now I get it. That is to say, <laughs> what's unique? Yeah, you thank go. you. I, I will definitely accept pity laughs. That is to say, like, what is interesting about him is whereas we might have a pastor that went through, let's say, like the, the ordinary means of more normal, formal training, here we have somebody that definitely had, I would say, a bent toward, like, I would say, like, his perspective was by default and maybe almost to a fault that it was going to be practical. And yeah. so he, th th this is why I think many people look up to him is because here was a guy, again, who was a doctor and became a pastor. You know, if there's any indication of just like how unique he is, whether this is either good nor bad, I submit to you that the banner of truth, which I think we both universally love what stuff they put out, but the banner yeah. of truth has, let me look here, like four children's board books. And one of them is called The Woman Who Helped a Reformer. It's about Martin Luther's wife. The Woman Who Loved to Give Books. That sounds like a great book. That's about Susanna Spurgeon. The Man Who Preached Outside. I love that title. <laughs> George Whitfield. Like, cut to George Whitfield being like, hey, really? That's all? <laughs> That's how you're going to do me? The Man Who Just Preached Outside? And the last book, so again, there's only four, is the doctor who became a preacher. So look at that yeah. company there. Like, so, the, so I guess for Lloyd-Jones, there is this sense, even among children, like it's trying to emphasize, here's somebody that God used in a profound way who started in ordinary sense. Yeah. And now we're back to ordinary means. Like I, yeah. I love that in preaching. Like preaching is ordinary means, not because it's not supernatural and expressive, and exacting and huge. It's all those things, but it's ordinary means because God has said this is the ordinary way in yeah. which faith goes out, which faith is made uh, manifest in people's lives. Yeah. And you know, every once in a while you read um, a statement by someone from a previous era that sounds like it could be someone who is writing to us right now. Sure. Like when you read Christianity and liberalism by Jake Reshamation, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's like he wrote it yesterday. Right. And this, this quote not only summarizes Lloyd Jones's sort of understanding and philosophy of preaching, but it also is so applicable to our current context. He writes, um, and this is in a, this is a quote of a quote in a quote. So it, it, it's him, but I don't know exactly where it quote came from. Inception. Yeah. Quoteception. He says, the superficiality of modern evangelism is not the result of an overemphasis on justification. How many times have we heard that in the, the most recent days? Boom. That the, what we really got to do is stop getting obsessive about justification. Right. Is not an overemphasis on justification. It was because it did not preach the law, the depth of sin and the holiness of God. The gospel was being preached in terms of the offer of a friend and a helper. The characteristic of Calvinistic evangelism is that the majesty and glory of God is put first instead of some benefit provided yes, for man. So, so good. when I think about the so times, good. 
you know, my, I don't want to call it a ministry, but my evangelistic endeavors have not, I mean, I have not been like the most stellarly successful thing in my life. Like, it's not that I don't try. It's not that I don't pray. I'm comfortable with saying that the Holy Spirit has just not seen fit to use my efforts in like an extreme way. I can count on one hand the number of people who have come to faith in the last, what, 20 some years of me being a Christian that I had a direct interaction with related to evangelism. But that said, the times that I've I've seen success have been the times that I didn't try to tell someone that Jesus wanted to be their buddy and that Jesus was going to make everything better and that you're really sad. And but if you if you trust Jesus, you're not going to be sad anymore. Right. You're really lonely. But if you trust Jesus, then you'll always have the Holy Spirit as your constant companion. Like those things aren't necessarily untrue. But the times that I have seen success in evangelism have been the times that I finally got to the point with someone where I said, look at this particular sin in your life. You did this yesterday, and that is enough to send you to hell forever because God is holy and you are not. Now, do you want to go to hell forever or do you not want to go to hell forever? Those are the times that I've been successful when the person looks at me and and actually in probably three of the four times I'm thinking of with tears in their eyes that I don't want to go to hell forever. Right. And so then you can say, well, let me tell you about Jesus because he saved you from his sins. Oh, and guess what? He's also the best friend you're ever going to have. He's also going to give you his spirit to be your constant companion. But all of that is pales in comparison to you rightfully giving the the worship and glory and honor to God that he deserves, regardless of whether he was going to save you or not. Right. That that is evangelism. That's the kind of evangelism that Lloyd Jones is talking about. And that's the kind of evangelism that he calls logic on fire or preaching on fire is that that logic or that preaching that puts the, the glory of God, particularly in contrast to the sinfulness of man front and center. And so he, he puts that front and center in order to hammer you with that law so that when the gospel is presented to you, it is the sweet medicine that, right. that it is, right? If, if all that the gospel is, is that I can have, a, I can have some sort of like special friend, like I can get, I can get a special friend just about anywhere, right? If it's self-help, like <laughs> I say this sometimes when we're planning events at the church, like we're a small church, we don't have a lot of resources. Like if we think that we're going to attract people to our church because we can put on like a really great community carnival, like there, there are a thousand places in this up in the upper Valley of New Hampshire here that can put on better community carnivals of and course. do put on better community of course, carnivals. Right. You know, so like if that's what we think is going to attract people to to Jesus, like we are just woefully mistaken. Right. The world can do entertainment better than we ever will. Right. But what it can't do is offer salvation from sin. <laughs> so you stole all my quotes, so we need to end the episode <laughs> because everything you were going to say from this chapter, you literally just took from me. And I, I have no more quotes. Uh, for, second thing is all I, all I kept hearing was say hello to my little friend, except like say hello to my special friend. Um, and then as you were kind of articulating that and developing it, all I kept thinking was, is it possible that Martin Lloyd-Jones is like the original Paul Washer? Like I'm talking about you, like this idea that even before we tell people about Christ yeah. and salvation, people need to hear about the true God. Yeah. Like that's not just about, you, listen, what, you know what you need is like a better friend. What you need is like a spiritual advisor, a mentor, or this cosmic gumball machine. Right. What you need to know about first is about God. And that is, I think, a great challenge to all of us in yeah. how we approach 
our evangelism is where is like that first domino and what are the ones that fall subsequently? Yeah. So I think that maybe he was like the, the first Paul Washer. Like, I don't know what his Britney Spears moment was, but I'm sure it was in there somewhere. Like, cause if you listen to some of his sermons, like he is very austere, like he's very serious, but you can tell at least, and this is what's great. It's like, we're finally into some of these preachers in Dr. Beagie's book where you can go up and actually look up or listen to some of their actual sermons in their own voice. So now you can hear them express these words of God in a voice that is their own. So you're getting the full sense and weight of their own communication. Go do that. Like, go just find anything yeah. by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Or I guess go get the children's book by the Banner of Truth. I, I haven't read it yet. Seems like it's a good read. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would echo that. I haven't listened to a lot of um, Lloyd-Jones' stuff. But but the stuff that I've listened to, he's you know, he's a phenomenal preacher. Like, he, he will just level you uh, with his exegetical insight and his application of the law to his hearers. And, and that's, that's what I think his legacy is, right? He, he was influential on, on R.C. Sproul and R.C. Sproul wrote the holiness of God. Most of what, most of what R.C. Sproul wrote in the holiness of God was not new. It was stuff that he, he probably learned in a lot of ways from like Lloyd Jones and Edwards and, and people who came before him. And like, isn't that just the reality of the Christian life? Like, if I can ever write something that is uh, a new approach, that's not so good. Like it, it, I don't want to write new things like that's, there's nothing new under the sun. So why would I need to write new theology? But if I can take something, the insight from a previous generation and repackage it in a way that is able to land and, and appeal to a new generation in a, in a way that's more, um, flavorful, I guess. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm struggling for words here. Is this but a like, cheese reference? That's yes. Yes, it is. Jesse, that was my intention all along. If I can package up the little nubbins of a Martin Lloyd Jones sermon and make it more appealing by putting it in the little end cap at the end of the deli aisle for you, then that's what I want to do. Well, actually I think that is appropriate because in terms of like rounding down this conversation and also at the same time encouraging others to continue the lesson for next week, that's kind of what we're trying to do with the ongoing discussion of what it means to understand and honor Christ and also how do we understand mental images of him. Like it's that very thing, right? It's like we want to process this stuff in a way that is important and applicable to our own generation. Those are actually asking the questions. Right. Those that are actually wrestling through all this stuff. That's what we're endeavoring to do. I actually think that is a good activity that is worth performing and laboring through. So Lloyd-Jones did that well in his own day. So did Vice. And again, like to just reiterate one thing we've said before, I loved how in each of these chapters with all these examples of preachers, it was almost replete that in every instance, every time, Beaky said something like, this was happening in the world, but by the grace of God, these preachers were in that time to preach this distinct message. And so that's like a great encouragement that God is always doing his good work. And in part, that good work is through the mouthpiece of using these preachers of unique personalities, unique styles in the time in which he's put them. There's no mistake there. He's putting them distinctly and categorizing them and placing them into these time periods and eras in which they belong because he has placed them there for for specific purpose. Yeah, easy for you to say. Yeah, not so much. Yeah, I I can't talk either. Apparently, I just said that my goal was to make Martin Lloyd Jones more flavorful for a new generation. So I'm with you there, brother. I, I like that. Listen, that should be 
one of our taglines. Like, the Reform Brotherhood making reform. Ah, oh, see, I just lost it. Making Lord Jones more flavorful for everybody. Flavor, flavor, flavor. <laughs> it'd be like it'd be like the Reform Brotherhood, a flavorful podcast for a flavorless generation. Oh, it's too bad we so already good. have a tagline. This is why we're very quickly burgeoning into reformed food as yes. our, one of our major subjects. Yeah. Yeah. I think the key is to just use keywords as much as possible really is how you win those contests. I think so. At this point, do we need to talk about this hour mark that we have, which we just, we basically, we see the hour mark we're recording and we're like, I don't care. I'm going yeah. to honey badger that hour mark. We will I just look keep at going it. right through it. I look at it in my head. I'm like, we really should wrap up. And then I'm like, but one more point. And it's like 20 minutes later. Exactly. Well, we should wrap up. So don't forget uh, next week, we're going to cover some of the questions and feedback that have come in about uh, some of our answers to the second commandment question. Yes. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, if this is the first episode of the Reform Brotherhood that you've ever listened to, then go back and listen to the last week's and then also look up the episode. I think it's called the second commandment. I mean, if you type in second commandment into our website, you'll find it. Go back and listen to those because we're going to build on those conversations. We're probably not going to like recap the, the basic stuff or the, the, the introductory right. stuff as much. So go back and listen to them or you may be hopelessly lost. Um, but we hope to address your concerns, address your questions. Uh, we want it to be an edifying time. There's still time if you've got some questions or some thoughts. If you if you go listen to this and you're like, how dare they? And you want to get that in there. Um, you can call the voicemail 607-444-2767. Bros. Uh, bros, which spells bros. Or info at reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, Jesse's going to pull those all together and we will tackle them next next week. So until that time when we speak next, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Bye.